Welcome to the second wave of quarantine evidence-based radio. Once again, here we are. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So before we get started tonight, I do just want to acknowledge the suffering that is taking place right now in the Ukraine. Um, I don't have anything good to say about it in the sense that I don't think I have anything to contribute, but I just felt it would be really weird not to acknowledge the fact that we are witnessing uh, basically horrific war crimes and uh, it's very tough to to deal with in the sense of feeling powerless to help. Um, And I just wanted to also take a second to acknowledge my um, privilege, my ability to feel completely safe in my own surroundings. And I wish that more people could feel that way. And um, again, like I said, I don't have anything profound to say. I just felt it would be really, really awkward not to talk about something that is so horrible and so prescient right now. Okay, so having said that, let's move on to our regularly scheduled programming. And of course, that begins with turning to talk about COVID. And so as you probably have already been thinking about and anticipating is the CDC's new guidance on masks. And so as expected, they have relaxed the guidelines for wearing masks and have changed how they define risk, taking the country from almost completely at high risk to having over 70% of U.S. counties now listed as low to medium risk. And so the CDC is only recommending masking in the 30% of areas that are still considered high risk. Right now, most of Western and Central Mass are considered to be medium, while Hampton County, Boston, the North Shore, and the Cape are considered low. So there's no high areas in Massachusetts at all. And so these new levels are based not only on case counts, but also now include severity of cases and hospital capacity. CDC head Rochelle Walensky suggested in a press conference that, quote, we're in a better place today because with widespread population immunity, the overall risk of severe disease is lower. Now, of course, it remains to be seen whether this will last. The CDC relaxed masks last spring, but by the summer, Delta had started to surge. We can only hope that we're done with variants that are more virulent and or more contagious. Now, the guidelines suggest that if you're in a low area, you could mostly do without masks if you're fully vaccinated. In fact, you can do without masks. Medium risk suggests that those who are at high risk for severe symptoms should consult with a medical profession professional as to whether or not they should continue to wear a mask. And in high-rate counties, masks should continue to be worn indoors at all times. Now, honestly, part of the reason for the relaxation is 
obviously data-driven, but some of it might simply be for the optics, because the fact is that people have mask fatigue. And so a lot of people have stopped wearing masks, and so it's easier to say, oh no, that's fine, than to admit that you are not being listened to by a large swath of the country. Um, And so... I understand why they did this. It's just not something that I continue, that I feel safe with. So I'm almost certainly going to continue to wear a mask for a while because I would rather be safe than sorry. And I personally don't feel like we're at a point where I would feel comfortable walking around in public without a mask. And so, yeah, I think that that's, (laughs) just something that I'm not quite to that point yet. Uh, You know, masks can be annoying, but I think that it's a good idea and almost as a general rule that when in close proximity to strangers, especially where you don't need facial expressions, places like the grocery store and retail stores, you know, I actually think that, you know, lots of countries people do this especially during cold seasons, they just wear masks when they're out and about. And, you know, again, they're not the most comfortable thing necessarily, but I think that uh, it might be a good idea to start doing this as a general rule. Now, Walensky does get that this may cause a rise in cases that will flip more counties to high risk. We recognize that we need to be flexible, she said. We need to be able to dial restrictions back up again should we have a new variant or new surge. But of course, that relies on people being willing to ramp back up after being given a taste of freedom, because apparently for a lot of people, wearing masks is a terrible imposition and just destroys their whole like life. Um, it's always amazing to me to hear people complain about masks as if they are being asked to wear a straight jacket or something completely and utterly restrictive and, you know, that is something that completely changes your ability to do things. It's like a mask does not do that. I just don't understand why people are so upset about it. And of course, we do know why, uh, because it has become politicized, which is another thing that is just absolutely insane. Um, the fact that public health measures have become part of the culture war. Uh, yeah, it's, it is a brave new world that we live in. And, uh, I'm not sure that I'm enjoying it. <laughs> now, other countries have relaxed their regulations, but most of those countries, at least in the West, such as Denmark, have much higher rates of vaccination than the U.S., which, of course, continues to lag behind the rest of the world with easy access to vaccines. So with the low vaccination rate combined with three major waves of COVID, the initial, and then uh, Delta, and then Omicron, the CDC suggests now that 40 3% or 140 million Americans have had COVID, with around 37 million being infected during the Omicron surge. 
They also believe that 58% of children, 58% of children have been infected at some point. Now, this is, of course, largely due to not having had access to vaccinations through much of the pandemic. And of course, young children still do not. Now, the estimates come from a nationwide seroprevalence surveillance program, which screened nearly 72,000 blood samples collected between December 27th and January 29th. These samples were submitted for non-COVID-related reasons, such as routine medical screens. A separate seroprevalence, seroprevalence surveillance program, say that five times fast, goodness, using blood donations looked at antibodies both from past infection and vaccination. This suggests that 95% of Americans aged 16 and older had antibodies for combating SARS-CoV-2. But obviously, this did not prevent a huge peak during the Omicron wave. And so again, we once, we once again see that Omicron really did kind of blow people away, even when they had some antibodies. Now, Massachusetts had a rate of 36.5 overall, with nearly 50% for children under 18, which is crazy. Interestingly, though, I was looking at these numbers and I found some interesting uh, things. Wisconsin came in with the highest rate at 56.1% of the population being suspected of having had COVID-19, including 76.9% of those under the age of 18. And in fact, the Midwest topped the list with Iowa and Illinois following Wisconsin closely, both at 54.4%. And so, yeah, I would have honestly suspected that it would be southern states or places like Idaho or Wyoming. Uh, Wyoming was certainly up there. Uh, the I think the highest for the south was Texas, but again, was under uh, most of the Midwest and Wyoming. And so... You know, Wyoming, there's less people, so that makes sense. But I was really shocked that the Midwest came in above the South. Uh, that was actually really interesting to me because I would not have expected that. Um, so, again, though, while we continue to see waning protection from infection, the further out from vaccination or boosting, cell-based immune responses from both past infection and vaccination continue to show a slower decline and continue to be highly protective against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. So again, it's still working. The data also supports, once again, the importance of vaccination, with those in the age group 50 to 64 having around an 80% vaccination rate and those with higher risks of death having the lowest rates of past infection and vice versa. Only around 37% of people in that age group have had COVID-19. Now, this data is obviously not 100% accurate. It accounts for only a fraction of the people in the country and extrapolates using statistical methodology. 
but it's almost certainly a fairly accurate picture given that we've what we've seen and been able to track over time. And so I think that the big takeaway though is once again vaccines are doing what we expect them to do which is to be highly effective at preventing hospitalization severe uh severe symptoms and especially death. And so I think that that is the real takeaway is that, you know, vaccines are still working. Um, and we see places where actually, I'm sorry, I should have looked up what the vaccination rates were specifically in, uh, those Midwestern states. Uh, I just, you know, the, the data that I remember seeing recently all looked like it was the South that was the least, um, interested in vaccine uptake. And I hadn't really noticed the Midwest as much, but, um, yeah, basically vaccines work. And even having previously had COVID-19 does also seem to be helping to keep you from getting a second wave um, infection that is worse and leads to bad outcomes. So all in all, very um, good that this is the kind of thing that is going to be able to continue to keep us mostly um, okay. Now, another study looked at how vaccines and boosters are doing in the real world for children and teens. They found trends that largely mirror those for adults. Effectiveness wanes over time and vaccines are less effective against Omicron, but still continue to protect against severe disease. Now, the data looked, the data from the CDC looked at medical records from 10 states and focused on the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, but they looked at the records of nearly 40,000 visits of healthy children and teens to emergency departments and urgent care centers, as well as around 1,700 hospitalizations, which were recorded between April 9, 2021 and January 29, 2022. They found that, as with adults, the further you were, from the second dose, and especially the more the infections turned towards Omicron on the sort of timeline, the less protective the vaccines were. But they also found that, as in adults, a booster shot was effective at bringing efficacy back up sharply. Once again, there are definite limitations to the study. For instance, the researchers guessed at the strain based on dates rather than genetic testing. They also weren't able to track other interventions such as mask wearing and physical distancing, and some sample pools were small, which always leads to a large confidence interval. So basically, in science, the smaller the confidence interval, the more likely the results are representative. So if you have um, a confidence interval that is between like one and three, um, and so you say that it's, you are saying that it's probably around 2.1 and the confidence interval is like 1.1 to 3.1, that's not bad. If it's uh, 
you know, if you say that something is 10 and the confidence interval is 2 to 15, that's, that's not as great. <laughs> um, and so basically you want a small confidence interval. Um, so the, basically the, um, range of places where you think the data could actually be beyond the point that you've picked. You want that to be a small um, interval. But of course, overall, it continues to show that getting the vaccine and booster remains the easiest and most effective way to prevent being infected or, and or having a severe reaction to COVID-19. I know I sound like a broken record with that, but it just, I just, <laughs> um, it's just very important to keep thinking about that and remembering that that is important, that if you are fully vaccinated, if you have your booster, you are much more likely to be, um, you know, continue to be healthy, continue to not get a severe disease as um, we continue, as long as there aren't major changes to the um, virus, which unfortunately we may still have times where there will be major changes to the virus. Because as we know, a lot of people are still not vaccinated. Um, you know, there's still places in the world that are probably in the single digits for the number of pop, the, for the percentage of the population that have been vaccinated. And so we've talked about this lots. So I don't want to belabor it too much, but obviously the vaccine rollout to places that could not afford to pay top dollar the way that Western countries could, has been much slower. And also, to be fair, a lot of those places have real issues with distribution. So they don't have, you know, perfectly paved uh, roads that lead to pretty much everyone in the country. They don't have um, a lot of the infrastructure that Western countries do. Um, and so, or de developed countries. Um, and so I think that it's important to keep in mind that even though we're feeling pretty good right now, that, you know, things are pretty stable, people, you know, the numbers are going down uh, consistently right now. The wave has passed, it crested and has uh, gone down that there is still potential out there for new strains to develop and for new problems to arise. And <laughs> so that actually kind of brings us to our final COVID story tonight. So um, this is a bit of a coin toss. Uh, it could be nothing, or it could be sign a sign of something very dangerous. So this is fun. Um, I'll say up front, though, that the signs currently point to this not being an issue at this particular moment. I don't want to hype it up unfairly, but it could become a problem in the future. So I don't want to downplay it either um, too much. 
And so I think I've mentioned before the fact that uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, the virus that causes COVID-19, has been detected in deer and mink populations. So both wild and farmed populations of deer have been found to be carrying the disease in the U.S. And until now, uh, the only zoonotic infections, so directly from an animal, infections that we'd had were from people working on mink farms in the U.S. Um, I think there might have been some in Europe as well, but for in the U.S. Um, or in North America. And so recently, Canadian health officials, uh, having heard about uh, America's problem with uh, deer that are infected with SARS-CoV-2, uh, they figured uh, we should probably look at our deer too. And so not only did they find deer, that had uh, the virus, they also found what they have identified as a possible transmission from a deer to a human host. So um, again, after the U.S. announced that they had found the virus circulating among deer populations, Canada decided to check on their population. And so during November and December, which coincided with parts of the deer hunting season, uh, luckily, so they didn't have to do culls um, outside of that. Uh, samples were collected from almost 300 deer registered by hunters. So um, if you're not a hunter, when you bag a deer, as it's called, you actually have to take it to a station and have them inspect it to make sure, because um, there are strict rules as far as you know, how big it is, whether it's a male or a female, things like that. Um, just FYI, I am not a hunter. I do not hunt. Um, I don't um, particularly have any interest in uh, hunting, but I um, have watched enough. Uh, <laughs> um, there are a bunch of shows that are basically follow wildlife Um uh, officers and I used to watch them with my dad. So, um, I know about that, uh, through him, though he is also not a hunter. He just liked watching the show. Um, and so they found that the overall, that overall the prevalence of the disease was low with only 6% of deers testing positive. However, looking at the genomes for some of the samples was less reassuring. Now, again, a limitation of the study was that of 21 deer they identified as infected, only five genomes were actually fully sequenced. But what they found was that the virus in the deer was most closely related to those that had spread from humans to mink in Michigan, which is not surprising um, since it's right there next to Canada. Um, and so the lineage had first been identified a year prior. And so since then, it had developed up to 76 further mutations, which, of course, we tend to think if a virus is getting mutations, that's potentially a really bad thing. But again, there's more good news here, 
which is that most of those mutations seem to be random. They're not pushing the virus towards any kind of particular direction in the deer. A lot of them were um, uh, SNPs that were neutral. They didn't change anything. Um, and the others were kind of distributed across the genome. There wasn't a, uh, there didn't seem to be any selection pressure for changes to the spike protein or anything like that that would be worrisome. And in fact, the researchers found that the spike protein in that deer population variant was effectively neutralized by antibodies made by vaccinated individuals. So all of that is good news. The bad news was, again, that it matched the genome from a human infection that took place in proximity to the area and time where the deer samples were gathered. And in fact, the, the individual was known to have contact with deer, so the researchers suspect it may have jumped from the deer to the patient. Further bad news is that the variant has been circulating among deer for some time. This means that even if you could control the infection rate in humans, the potential for reinfection of a mutated variant in future from contact with deer cannot be ruled out. Now, of course, as I kept saying, nothing right now shows that it's doing anything funky that would actually make it uh, concerning to us, but that doesn't mean it couldn't do that in the future. Now, of course, further complicating the matter was the rise of Omicron during this time period, which meant that fewer people were probably tracked as the surge overwhelmed systems. And so there might have been other people who had this variant and we just don't know. Um, and also, because of everything that was going on at that time, it's not 100% clear whether the... Um, infection was deer to human or maybe was human to deer. We just don't know for certain, but we do know that deer are currently a zoonotic reservoir for um, SARS-CoV-2, which is not great news. Right now, it's not alarming news, but it's not great news. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the kind of takeaway is, should we panic? Not right now. Um, more research will be needed, but it could end up that the variant will mutate. Um, and actually, it could mutate so that, for instance, it's no longer able to infect humans. It's not likely, but it's a possibility. Or it could become much less severe, like the coronaviruses that cause the common cold. Or it could burn out in deer and they could cease being a reservoir. There's a whole bunch of things that could happen. And so the answer really is we just don't know. Um, until we have more data, until there's more cases, until there's more tracking, there's no need to panic. Um, I'm not terribly worried about it at the moment. Um, you know, the... We know that it's been circulating in them for at least a year, and there doesn't seem to have been any real big problems as of uh, yet with anything. And so I think that, you know, we do know um, one of the sort of er investigations 
of uh, the entire COVID-19 investigation on how it uh, arose in human populations suggests that it came from um, what is called a wet market in China where people were buying live animals. Um, Probably it was a live mammal um, that somebody bought and, you know, it jumped from that animal to humans. Uh, Again, this is pretty much what we've always suspected uh, happened, at least if we weren't uh, engaging in conspiracy theories about um, biowarfare, though obviously uh, (laughs) in this day and age, it's weird to say, oh, that's a complete and utter uh, conspiracy theory, because unfortunately we live in an era where that kind of thing could happen. Um, but I clearly don't think that it did in this case. I think that I personally think that if someone is going to do that, they would take credit. Um, I just feel like the kind of, uh, person or entity that would actually create a bioweapon, uh, would want people to know that they did it. And that's completely a weird, uh, opinion on my part that is absolutely based in nothing except for maybe watching too many movies (laughs) uh, and reading too many comic books. But I just feel like someone's going to do that. They'd, they'd say, ha ha, we did that. Um, So yeah, I think that we uh, don't necessarily need to assign malice where uh, incompetence or coincidence could, uh, fill in just perfectly. All right. So we are going to take a break now. We are going to stop talking about COVID-19 and um, we're going to come back and we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, a little bit obliquely about Ukraine. And uh, I'm going to probably get a little bit off topic with talking about uh, capitalism as I am want to do. So, uh, but there will be other science stories on the other side. So please do, do stay tuned. Do, uh, continue listening. You are listening to evidence-based radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, Women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly, and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. 
Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are still listening to Evidence-Based Radio. So as I uh, teased on the other side of the break, I do want to talk about a story that is related to the Ukraine. And I wanted to bring this story because I'm very fond of talking about how terrible Starlink and SpaceX and Elon Musk are. And uh, this is kind of another saga within all of this uh, craziness that is Starlink and Elon Musk. So actually responding to pleas from the Ukrainian government, uh, Musk has sent a shipment of terminals for Starlink in order for people to be able to use the broadband network service in areas experiencing outage. Uh, these are especially in the eastern portion of the country, which makes sense because that's the uh, area of the country that is under the most heavy bombardment and uh, is being taken over. But of course, because of this, uh, as with all things associated with Starlink, for instance, there are pros and cons. So while the technology could be used to help people connect in areas where regular infrastructure has been damaged, satellite signals can be targeted and thus can cause a real security risk for those using them. And so it's definitely potentially a double-edged sword. If an adversary has a specialized plane aloft, it can detect signal 
and home in on it. Nicholas Weaver, a security researcher at the University of California at Berkeley, said via email to CNN, It isn't necessarily easy, but the Russians have a lot of practice on tracking various signal emitters in Syria and responding. Starlink may work for the moment, but anyone setting a dish up in Ukraine needs to consider it as a potential giant target. Oof. Alp Toker, who heads the internet monitoring firm Netblocks, notes that there is always risk associated with new technologies in war zones, where being found with unfamiliar equipment can single out journalists or activists for closer scrutiny. There's also the specific risk of getting traced in triangulation via radio frequency emissions when it comes to telecommunication equipment. And so he further wrote that these risks, quote, need to be weighed up on a case-by-case basis. And so, yeah, it's an interesting dichotomy because in this case, you know, Musk did uh, follow through when someone asked for uh, the equipment. It's there. Uh, the government tweeted pictures of it and said thank you. But it also is potentially a really bad idea. Um, whew, it's an interesting story. Um, so, yeah, despite the request from the government itself, this may be another case of Elon Musk getting in over his head. Um, but, of course, I have to admit that I don't necessarily fault him. Um, he was responding to a genuine request, and while it may not prove to be terribly helpful in the end, he was trying. Um, and it has a stinger. <laughs> so it has a little bit of an addis- added bonus here. Uh, no one's been uh, had any troubles yet, so I feel like it's still okay to be a little bit light about this. Um, and of course, you know, in the face of terrible things, um, you know, one has to try and find the uh, silver linings. And so uh, this action has had the bonus effect of really riling up um, Dmitry uh, Rogozin, who is the head of Roscomos, which is the Russian uh, astronaut uh, agency. And um, he's, in my very humble opinion, a bit of a lunatic. Um, He is the guy who has continued to um, try and float this conspiracy theory that the Americans drilled a hole in the uh, International Space Station, um, or actually in the, um, in the, spaceship that the was up there from the uh delivering people to the international space station for some reason uh i can't even remember what it was but he's just been so like ridiculous and he's very outspoken and is very um extreme and so i am kind of uh in love with this exchange Uh, So, Rogozin wrote, Musk files 
say this is amazing. It is the light of our worldwide cosmic exploration. Well, Musk has taken aside. I don't have issues with him. It's obvious it's the West, which we should never trust because it has always chronically experienced jealousy among the political elites, jealousy to our country. Look at how right now they are racing each other to flank on our relationship and who is going to clean up the mess all up later. It is very dangerous what is happening right now. Now, to his credit, Musk replied in a tweet, Ukraine's civilian internet was experiencing strange outages. Bad weather, perhaps? So SpaceX is helping fix it. <laughs> um, yeah, that is a master level troll um, on uh, Rogozin, who, again, I think is a little bit of a lunatic, um, just, just a touch of madman. So, you know, it's, again, you have to find the silver linings in these sorts of things. Um, obviously, there's some other worrying things, which is that uh, because this crazy person is in uh, charge of Roscosmos right now, um, you know, the issues with the International Space Station, there are definitely issues. And I don't love that um, because I think the International Space Station is really important. And uh, if things are going to degrade and that's going to have problems, that's, you know, obviously that's a really bad thing. And so um, hopefully that will resolve at some point and cooler heads will prevail. Um, but in this moment, I do think that's worth a chuckle. But again, it doesn't really change my mind on Musk overall. I still kind of think that he's a two-bit hack who used his inherited wealth to buy companies and then claim their work as his own and to act like he is some sort of wonderful, stable genius. Um, he also has the personality, uh, has a personality that rivals Mark Zuckerberg's for the worst impersonation of a real human boy. So yeah, he's definitely still not my favorite. Um, and I still think that private spaceflight is a terrible idea. And so that actually leads into my next story, which was more about labor rights, but it really caught my eye and I really wanted to talk about it because I don't necessarily know that a lot of people are going to be reading about this. And so um, it does concern spaceflight. And so it really points to just how bad it is when you combine important industry and profit-motivated private ventures. And so recently, the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers Local Lodge 44 Union in Alabama voted unanimously to strike if they could not reach a fair contract with United Launch Alliance according to president to union president david story now apparently usually they take a vote before they go into uh contract negotiations and usually it's more than like 90% 95% of people say yes but in this case every single person did roughly two decades we have made concessions on every contract said story we've given up pension 
retiree health care, in some classifications, we've agreed to a $20 per hour pay cut in the last contract to stay competitive with SpaceX. The vaccine mandate was just the nail in the coffin. Now, I obviously do not agree with people trying to avoid getting the vaccination, but Story explains that comment. Again, he said, the vaccine mandate was just the nail in the coffin. Where we negotiated with the company over that mandate and had come to an agreement, they would allow some deeply held religious and medical exemptions, and the membership thought that was a fair and reasonable negotiation, said Story. The company completely reneged on that, and I think that speaks to the way they've treated us for the past two decades. That we're expendable. They don't mind terminating us at the drop of a hat, and I think everyone's fed up with being treated like that. And I think that that's a really fair and important thing to talk about. The erosion of unions in this country and the commodification and privatization of as much as possible continues to chip it away at people's ability to make a living. The idea that they're having to cut benefits and pay to stay competitive with SpaceX, for instance, is incredibly frustrating. Workers creating space engineering projects should be highly paid and be working for companies that are contracted with NASA and the U.S. government and should have full benefits and union wage jobs. Now, I think, obviously, that everyone should have a job that pays a real living wage. But these are skilled workers, and they should definitely be earning what they're what they're worth and having the security for their retirement. If we're serious about space exploration, we should be serious about making sure that the people who are involved in it are taken care of, as well as the rich billionaires who are going to be able to go into space because they're the only ones who can afford the tickets. It's just another place where people are being ground down by capitalism. And, um, you know, I just thought it was such an interesting uh, lens to look at for this whole space race that's going on right now with private uh, space companies and how it just, you know, the whole thing about capitalism is that it drives everyone to try and suck the most that they can out of people who are working for them and to, you know, the uh, cult of efficiency and of cost-cutting measures and of, you know, doing things as cheaply as humanly possible. And it's just so frustrating. And, you know, we live in this cognitive trap where we just, we assume that there's no other way to do it other than capitalism. And while I don't think we'll ever be completely free of capitalism, I think that we really have to start thinking about how we move people to understand that they deserve more. And, um, you know, that's a whole suite of like cognitive, uh, techniques and, uh, you know, learning how to 
change people's understandings is a whole nother thing. Uh, we definitely can't talk about that tonight because we do not have time. Um, but I think that we really have to continue to talk about the fact that, you know, a very tiny percentage of people own almost all of the capital that's available. You know, the Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk's of the world are not like us. They are not interested in the working man. And we have to keep trying to remind people of that. Um, so yeah. Okay. Rant over. <laughs> We're going to switch to talk, talking about a giant rogue wave, um, which is, of course, better than spending any more time talking about uh, billionaire tech bros and how they are ruining everything, <laughs> in my opinion. So let's talk about rogue waves. Rogue waves used to be the stuff of legends. No one actually knew how a giant wave could form in the middle of the ocean, far from a shoreline, to build up the energy. To build up the energy, sorry. And so for hundreds of years, sailors told stories about rogue waves, but without a scientific explanation, they were considered just that, stories. Now, we still aren't quite sure how they're created, although we have ideas. They're most likely caused by a variety of factors, including wind speed, direction, water depth, and the terrain of the seafloor. And so the new paper published in Scientific Reports describes a rogue wave that appeared off the coast of Euculet, British Columbia, on November 17, 2020, and measured 58 feet tall. That is the equivalent, my friends, of a four-story building. Proportionally, the Euculet wave is likely the most extreme rogue wave ever recorded, Johannes Gemrich, the first author and a research physicist at the University of Victoria, said in a statement, adding, probability of such an event occurring is once in 1300 years. Now, the first rogue wave ever detected was only in 1995. It was sighted off the coast of Norway on New Year's Day and given the name Dropner. It was around 84 feet high, much taller, actually, than the Euclid wave. So think about that. <laughs> but the Euclid wave was different because it measured three times as tall as surrounding waves, while Drochner was only twice as high. So a few others have been recorded over the years, and many more suspected to have caused, for instance, otherwise mysterious shipwrecks, including... Uh, it's one of the uh, prevailing explanations for what happened to the Edmund Fitzgerald on Lake Superior. So obviously they can form not only in the ocean, but also on lakes, large lakes at least. Um, and so the Euclid wave was recorded by a three-foot Coast Scout sensor buoy floating 148 feet above the seafloor at Amphitrite Bank, 4.4 miles from the Vancouver Island shore. The buoy was deployed by Victoria-based Marine Labs Data Systems and is one of 26 such buoys currently placed along the coastline 
and oceans around North America. Now, they actually hope to expand this to 70 buoys by the end of 2022. The unpredictability of rogue waves and the sheer power of these walls of water can make them incredibly dangerous to marine operations and the public, Scott Beatty, Marine Lab's CEO, said in a statement. The potential of predicting rogue waves remains an open question, but our data is helping to better understand when, where, and how rogue waves form and the risks they pose. And this kind of data is going to become increasingly important as climate change makes waves in general bigger and less predictable and will most likely increase the amount of rogue waves as well. Because we still don't understand them at a very well at even a basic level, the data could be very important. We are aiming to improve safety and decision making for marine operations in coastal communities through widespread measurement of the world's coastline, said Beatty, capturing this once-in-a-millennium wave right in our backyard is a thrilling indicator of the power of coastal intelligence to transform marine safety. And speaking of record-breaking, the eruption last month of the Hunga Tonga Hunga Haapai volcano smashed two records at the same time. The plume reached the highest of any eruption captured in satellite records and generated an enormous amount of lightning strikes, almost 590,000 over three days, according to Reuters. The combination of volcanic heat and the amount of superheated moisture from the ocean made this eruption unprecedented. It was like hyperfuel for a mega thunderstorm. Christopher Bedka, an atmospheric scientist at NASA's Langley Research Center, who specializes in studying extreme storms, said in a statement from the NASA Earth Observatory, the plume went 2.5 times higher than any thunderstorm we have ever observed, and the eruption generated an incredible amount of lightning. So the volcano lies around 40 miles north of the Tongan capital of Nuku'alofa and is part of a, ch of a chain, the Tonga Kermadec Volcanic Arc, of mostly underwater volcanoes. The eruption began on January 13th with explosions that broke the surface and kicked off the lightning event. On the 15th, rising magma met seawater above the volcano, which produced a massive blast as the magma rapidly heated the water, creating expanding steam. Usually, underwater volcanoes don't produce huge plumes above the surface, but two weather satellites, NOAA's GOES-17 and Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency's Himawari-8, captured the eruption. Having these two perspectives allowed NASA to calculate just how high the plume reached. From the two angles of the satellite, we were able to recreate a three-dimensional picture of the cloud, Konstantin Klopenkov, a scientist at Langley, said in a statement. It, is it was determined that the highest plume rose 36 miles into the air and pierced the mesosphere, that's a layer above the stratosphere, a second plume reached 31 miles in the sky. Until then, the 90, 
1991 Mount Pinatubo eruption, the 22-mile plume was the record holder. The gas and ash that was not dispersed in the upper atmosphere covered an area of 60,000 square miles. And so, yeah, it is crazy. Um, And so, as the eruption plume hit the stratosphere and spread outward, it appears to have created waves in the atmosphere, says Chris Vagaski, a meteorologist at Vaisala, an environmental technology company. And they're using data from a ground-based lightning detection network to study the lightning. And so, yeah, it is pretty amazing. Um, Around 56% of the strikes struck the surface of land or ocean, with 1,300 hitting Tonga's main island of Tongatapu. And so, yeah, it was pretty amazing. And so there were two kinds of lightning, dry charging, in which ash, rocks, and lava particles repeatedly collide and swap negatively charged electrons, and ice charging, in which the plumes reached heights where water can freeze and form ice particles that slam into each other. Both of these cause electrons to build up on the underside of the clouds. The negatively charged particles then leap to higher positively charged regions of the cloud, or to positively charged regions of the sea or land below. The percentage of lightning that was classified as cloud to ground was higher than you would normally see in a typical thunderstorm and higher than you would typically see in volcanic eruptions. So that creates some interesting research questions. Whew, that is quite the thing. Um, and so, yeah. And with that, that is all the time we have for tonight. Thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.